there's, there's a very good thing, personal prayer. But when it can become so radically individualized that it loses its context, which is that we're members of the living body, the church. Um, in fact, I love what the fathers say about this. Whenever two or three are gathered together in my name, he says, what is, you know, I think it's John Chrysostom says, what is two or three but a family, a mother, a father, and their child? <laughs> love that line. Because it says, you're, you're taught to pray as a child, as a member of a family. Um, and, and so you're taught, and we're taught now as adults, um, to pray as a member of a family. Um, this is also incredibly important, too. I, I know, you know, part of the problem today is we, we, we lose this sense that our, our life of prayer will go through ups and downs. We'll go through really wonderful, sweet times and then incredibly dry valleys. And what do you do when your prayer life goes dry? Um, it's misery at certain points. <laughs> um, uh, you know, many authors have talked about this, the dark night of the soul when you feel like God's left you. What do you do? Well, you pray as a member of the body. That Even when you can't really muster the words, when you can't muster um, even the spirit to pray, uh, uh, we have a body that prays for us, and we indeed have the Holy Spirit praying within us. How is God like earthly fathers? Like all loving and sincere earthly fathers, God loves, teaches, and disciplines us, observing our needs and frailties, and planning for our maturity, security, and well-being. Um, it's rather sad to me today that a number of Christian leaders have sought to um, downplay this language of father. Um, it's unfortunate because, um, you know, you don't really get anywhere in this depersonalized Godhead, do you? I mean, this kind of denuded of all uh, personality God. Um, no, Jesus doesn't teach us to, call, to say our God who art in heaven. He could have done that if he wanted to, but he says our Father. Why? I would say this, not because Jesus is an advocate for this sort of nefarious patriarchy, right, that's, that's, that's set to destroy all femininity, that's set to basically uh, take down in a, in a really brutal way um, any meaningfulness, um, uh, behind uh, femininity, uh, I, I actually think it's quite the opposite. Um, that it's when we preserve these 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 uh, uh, these ideas of gender. And uh, hear me, this is not to say that the Godhead has gender. Okay, I'm not saying that at all. Um, but it is to say that God the Father reveals Himself as Father and for a reason. Um, and I can get into that a little bit. But the first is just to say what the Catechism says, and then I'll move on. Just I'll go a little bit beyond it. Um, Yes, God loves, teaches, and disciplines us. Um, the roles of father and mother were very different in the ancient world. Um, and indeed, they've been very different in most of history. It's only been recently that we've kind of seen an upending of this. Um, but a father plays a very, a very specific role within the family. And in the ancient world, the father played the role of, of guarding and directing the affairs of the family. Um, was not the nurturer, was not primarily uh, tasked with uh, doing things like taking care of, of various, uh, you know, various other needs within the family. It had a very specific role. Um, certainly, uh, the father in the ancient world observed uh, the needs of those in the household and was set to respond to them, uh, but also was the planner, right? Uh, would say, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. Um, we're going to farm these crops. We're going to raise these animals. This is what we're going to do. Um, 
And this is important because I want you to get this because we don't think like this anymore. In, the ancient, in ancient society, the household was an extension of the cultic temple. This was true not only in, uh, not only in Judaism, but also throughout the ancient world. Um, if you lived in Athens, your household was an extension of the Athenian temple. Um, and, and therefore, the hearth in the household was the place where, where Athena dwelt in your household. So who was, in a sense, the keeper of the household religion? Was it the man? No, it was the woman who kept the hearth. Um, and it meant that very much the practice of religion in the household was held by the woman. Um, in Jewish society, it's, it's different um, because these are not goddess worshipers. Um, they do not believe that creation shares in the nature of the goddess. Which, by the way, all those ancient religions teach that, um, that, uh, that if you have a goddess figure who's sort of at the top of things, she gives birth to the world out of her womb. And therefore, the entirety of creation shares in her nature. So this is true whether you've got Gaia or, um, or uh, um, Ashtoreth or whatever it may be. These are all Astarte. These are all various manifestations of the female deity. Um, but note what happens in Judaism. Does creation share in, the, share in the nature of the Godhead? Not at all. It's separate. Um, and so this, this ascribing of um, gender characteristics to God is very important theologically because it allows us to, to maintain these very clear boundary lines. Now, that's not to say women have no role in the, in the household. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, for instance, in Judaism, um, uh, there, there are various roles that women play. Um, and so, but, but this, I want to kind of disabuse you of this idea that, that this is all just patriarchy that's going on here. Not at all. Um, these are given to us for, for theological clarity about the nature of the universe, the nature of the cosmos. Um, so that's a really important thing. Um, it also keeps us from a lot of the kind of tendencies of, uh, of uh, the cults of the female deities, um, which are usually fertility cults, by the way. Um, and most often in fertility cults, the way that you get close, the way you draw near to the goddess is through sex. So what do you go into the temple to do As a, if you're a man? You go to consort with temple prostitutes. That's how you draw near to the deity. If you're worshiping a god who's not a female deity, but, but, but a masculine deity, um, what's it like? There's this idea of separation. God is way transcendent, and you're here. And so, uh, so you offer sacrifices. You, you do these things. That makes sense? Okay. And, and Jesus does not overturn this. In fact, he reinforces it, but in the right way, with our Father. Um, but we have, to, we have to balance this with how is God unlike our earthly fathers? Because I think this is really the cause of a lot of the problem is um, we want to be sensitive to people who've grown up with terrible father figures. Absolutely. Um, and that's a, a great problem that we have today, which is that both men and women uh, share this problem of having earthly fathers that were uh, tyrants or abusive or whatever it may be. And so th I think this question is quite good. How is God unlike earthly fathers? Unlike our natural fathers, our heavenly father is perfect in his love, almighty in his care, makes no errors in judgment, and disciplines us only for our good. Um, our Heavenly Father is perfect in his love. What does that mean? Ah, 
It means that his love is never focused on selfish ambition, but it's always an outpouring of himself. I think it's really hard for us to get um, because we often throw love around as a word and we say, well, God loves us. What does that mean? Well, it means that God has a self-interest in doing things for us. Try again. Oh, it means that God is, has, a, has a consuming passion for his own glory. And if you can get on board with that, then he'll have more glory and you'll be all set up. Can God have more glory than he has? Try again. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to talk about this in the sermon. Adam and Eve sin in the garden. And what does God do? He shows up for his afternoon walk. Why? And he says, he says, where are you, Adam and Eve? I can't find you. And he knows where they are. He doesn't ask for, for their, he doesn't ask for his own benefit. He asks for theirs. He seeks them. He loves them. He outpours himself in perfect love for them. Um, he comes to them even when he knows they're sinners. Does he come for his benefit? No. I mean, this is an amazing thing. He can just wipe them out. Just throw them in the cosmic trash can. Why not? They deserve it. But what does he do? He still comes to them. And we see that the perfect love of God is not a self-serving love. It is actually entirely a gift of self. Um, so there's your first distinction, right? I mean, <laughs> any of you have selfish fathers? Okay, probably a good number of you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Uh, but, but, you know, we can see this. And even if we didn't have an entirely selfish father, we could still see when our fathers were being selfish. Um, you know, Dad, play with me. I'm watching the game. You know, it's that kind of thing, um, which I know everybody's, a lot of us have done. Um, almighty in his care. Not only meaning that he cares immensely, but that, but that he can do anything for his children and does. Makes no errors in judgment. And it's often a horrible thing when you find out that your father is a frail person and he makes bad, bad decisions. Um, I remember when I was a kid, my dad went to some sort of like, financial seminar that was playing up like, hey, men, you need to take control of your family finances. And my dad said, oh, he came home. He said, I have to do this. And, and a few months later, the lights were shut off. <laughs> he, he made an error in judgment. And I thought, oh, no, dad is a human being. This is not good. <laughs> and it all got sorted out. But there it was. Um, and my mom took back over the checkbook. Uh, but, but it's just simply to say that, that, that God makes no errors in judgment. Um, we can trust that when anything in creation happens, it happens uh, either because God commands it to happen or because he allows it to happen. Um, and this should be a great comfort to us. Um, God has spoken of, and the Father spoken of in the Sermon on the Mount is the most wonderful illustration of this, um, as, as one who cares for everything in creation uh, and yet is distinct from it. So this is actually an important distinction here is that the, the subsistence of creation with God as Father is not in sharing in the Father's nature. The subsistence of creation is that God is active in caring for creation and carrying out his purposes within it, and yet remaining entirely separate. And disciplines us only for our good. Um, and this is often a, a, a great problem, is that we've got parents who discipline us for their own selfish ends. Um, and, and God the Father, not that way. Um, we're not really good about thinking about this, because it's, it's, it's an it's a unpleasant subject. But Scripture speaks at length about 
the value of divine discipline. Um, such that I love the I love in Hebrews about this, you know, that that we really shouldn't despair of uh, going through suffering. Well, why? Because it's a sign of God's love. Um, we uh, we can become very presumptuous when we go through extended periods of no suffering at all. <laughs> it's like everything's great with me. I've had a I've had a high balance in my checking account for a long time. Haven't had any health problems. No, I don't have any pain, no aches, no nothing. And and then all of a sudden, boom! You get hit with serious, serious difficulties. And you think, oh, God hates me now. This is bad. Well, no, 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 no. We're not really to respond to it like that. Um, this is for our good that this is happening. What is heaven? Okay completely switch gears. Heaven is the realm of God's glory, presence, and power, which exists alongside this earthly realm and from which he hears the prayers of his people. Oh, I love this answer. This is so good. Heaven is the realm of God's glory. What is God's glory? You know what it is to have glory? It means, what did you say? There's a, there's, there's a bit of that. Um, it's more of a kind of mastery. Um, that God holds mastery in creation. Um, mastery over every single cell, over every atom. Um, such that if, if God stopped caring for every little piece of creation, what would happen? It would be bad. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, total disaster, okay? Uh, did you ever get to that point in physics class where I think a lot of students of physics get where they think, oh my, if any of this stopped happening, we would be in, a, we'd be in deep trouble. Did you ever think about like absolute zero in terms of temperature? Do you know what this is? It's like the idea of you reach this absolutely cold temperature where all... Um, all molecular activity basically comes to a halt. Even atomic uh, movement stops. These electrons circling around atoms. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Well, anyway, so absolute zero is when it all just kind of stops. And the idea is that it would be so cold that it wouldn't be contained in one spot. It would just spread throughout all, all of all of everything. Um, wow, that's crazy. When you think about the kind of power that's in a single atom, um, it's amazing. Um, that is to say that we we uh, that that God is active in all creation, uh, but heaven is the realm of His glory, absolute mastery, um, where nothing in heaven happens um, that is disruptive or at odds with God's will. And it's also the place of His absolute presence. Now we believe that God is present throughout all creation, right? Absolutely. This presence is pervasive and obvious in heaven. And power. And I love how it says this, which exists alongside this earthly realm. Um, anybody here raised in a kind of way that got you to think, heaven up there, hell down there, we here. Okay? Um, it's very comforting, very medieval, very, uh, you know, I mean, I won't say more about it than that. But just like that's most people's conception of this kind of three-tiered universe where God's somewhere else, and we're here, and hell's down there. Um, I think in pondering Scripture, we need to be a little bit more um, uh, thoughtful than that, uh, which is to say that, that 
Um, we live in a visible realm. Uh, and, and very often, um, angels and things, and, and well, the second person in the Trinity, will, will bust through that curtain that separates the two and will enter into our world. Um, we'll be reading a lot of, uh, of um, the, the birth of John the Baptist and his father, Zechariah. I love the story. Zechariah goes into the temple to burn incense right, be, right at the curtain between the Holy of Holies and this kind of room, incense room. And he's burning incense alone, which is what you do when you're a priest in the temple and you burn incense before the Holy of Holies. You, you don't want anyone else in there because it's kind of it's a super dangerous. It's like the second most dangerous place to be in the whole of creation. Um, and and he, he's burning incense. And what you remember what happens? The angel Gabriel appears to him in that antechamber and, and tells him about the birth of his son. He's an old man. They haven't been able to have children. And, and he tells him, you're going to have a child. And John's sort of like, ah, what do you mean? And the angel's like, shut your mouth. Like, <laughs> it's great. Awesome stuff. But he rips through this curtain. Right? And in fact, in the temple, this curtain between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple was meant to signify this, this separation between God's realm and our realm. Um, and when there were transactions that took place between the two, you could be uh, you could be very aware of this. This is what the what's the letter of the Hebrews is is going on ad nauseum about, and it's so wonderful uh, about this ripping through this curtain that divides the visible from the invisible, which happens in the person of Jesus. Um, and it's in that light that we ought to see very strongly the who God is and what heaven is like. Right? So is this alongside this room? One of the things I love, and you'll probably hear this if you stay for Christmas, you know, on Christmas Eve, I just, I love this, because this, this is what happens. The invisible becomes visible. Um, the, the invisible second person in the Trinity takes on human flesh and is born of a virgin, and we see God. That's what Christmas is about. Okay? And I like to think of, you know, Christmas Eve, you know, if you could just pull the curtain apart, you would see angels gathered around the whole company of heaven, you know, there with us. Of course, you'd see that every Sunday if you looked. Um, and it is from heaven that he hears the prayers of his people. Why is it important that God remain uh, heavenly and not just sort of incredibly uh, imminent? Uh, we've got some philosophical problems here. <laughs> um, part of the problem with modern life is that we've become so ingrained in thinking within an entirely imminent frame that we seek meaning in what we can see, touch, taste, feel, and hear. That's where meaning is. Um, and is that true? I think we say, yes, it's true. That's where meaning is. But, but, but that's a rather new phenomenon. Um, it's an incredibly new phenomenon that human beings would only seek meaning within that realm within the visible physical world. Most people throughout history have sought meaning in a heavenly way. Um, and they've sought to substantiate the meaning of this world within that frame. Um, so it's very difficult to uh, break through to this because we're all very modern and almost helplessly so. Uh, it's just to say that we've got to see this, that God operates from a heavenly perspective and not an earthly one. Okay. If your father is in heaven, can he help you on earth? Yes, God is everywhere. And as my almighty father in heaven, he is able and willing to answer my prayers. Um, so there you have it. 
I think this is actually really helpful in a certain sense, which is that God answers prayers in a heavenly manner, which may have earthly consequences and earthly results, but the, the manner of the answer to those prayers will always be heavenly. Um, and this is an important, an important thing. Um, you know, think of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus goes around proclaiming what? The kingdom of heaven has what? Drawn near. And it's, in fact, this in the Gospel of Mark that allows all of these wonderful miracles to happen, right? Because the heavenly is breaking through to the earthly. Um, but we often, just when we pray, we think, oh, we're gonna, it would be great to just have an earthly response here, right? I mean, no offense, but when we pray for people going into surgery, it's give the doctors wisdom, all of this. You know, great, okay, fine. Earthly answers, right? Uh, when is it going to be that we pray for earthly answers but from a heavenly perspective? Um, it, which is that God is God has all glory and all power, and from heaven hears our prayers. That's why we pray, "Our Father who art in heaven," it's to remind us that that um, the the ultimate um, solution is heavenly. Um, okay. Now, of course, all that has to be balanced, right? I mean, some of you grew up in entirely uh, heavenly and very heaven-seeking Christian traditions, um, and others of you grew up in entirely earthly ones, <laughs> and, and there has to be some balance, right? Uh, but I think I think we need to begin to err on the side of, of heavenly, of the heavenly, um, because it teaches us and trains us to yearn for what we do not grasp in this life. Um, that's an important thing. Okay, let's move on to the first petition. What is the first petition? The first petition is, hallowed be thy name. What is God's name? God's name refers to his personal being, his nature, his character, his power, and his purposes. The name God reveals to Moses is, I am who I am, or simply, I am. This name means that he alone is truly God. He is the source of his own being. He is holy and just, and he cannot be measured or defined by his creatures. Okay, God's name refers to his personal being. God the Father is a person of the Trinity, and uh, his nature, and his character, and his power, and his purposes are all referred to by this name. Now, of course, what is the name of God? Don't say it. You'll get hit by lightning. <laughs> but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a four-letter word in the Hebrew, um, yod Hey vav Hey. Uh, and uh, it's given to Moses, and uh, I'm, I'm convinced that people from Moses on down said this word, but at a certain point, that word becomes so holy in the, in the imagination of the people, they stop saying it, and you may know this, that a Hebrew has no vowels, um, so instead of marking the vowels that you would imagine for this four-letter word, they mark vowels for another word, which is Adonai, which has a great number of vowels in it, and they mark it going backwards, you combine the two, you get Jehovah, which doesn't quite work, um, and it's not even Jehovah, it's Iova. Uh, anyway, um, but every time you read in the Old Testament, the Lord in all capital letters, this is the word, this four-letter Hebrew word is what you're seeing in the Hebrew text. Um, God has a name, and the name is, and this is important, the name is, I am who I am. So Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. Um, and, and it's, it's kind of a funny joke. Hebrew's, uh, Hebrew is a great jokey language. Um, but, but the understanding is that God is being itself. Not a being, but being itself. 
um, he is wholly other. Um, um, this means that he alone is truly God. There's a claim being made by the use of this word, which is to say, um, you go into that pagan land of Egypt and you tell them that I am, who's bigger and badder than all the others in Egypt, is sent you. Um, you know, Ra's the sun god, big deal, right? Um, <laughs> um, uh, here I am, okay? I am is here. Um, and of course, this is, this is what you see, actually. Uh, wonderful historians have, ta- have taught that what you're seeing in the plagues is you're seeing a showdown between I am and all the other Egyptian gods. One at a time, he knocks him off until he finally gets to Ra, who's the best of the Egyptian gods, and he conquers him too with darkness covering the land. And then defeats Pharaoh, who is the god of gods in that territory, who is the the god, the goddess man, the god man. He defeats him too. Okay. More about that later. See, see what's going on? We get to the god man later. Um, he is the source of his own being. He has no other source. He has no, uh, there's no kind of um, God who creates him. He is holy and just, and he cannot be measured or defined by his creatures. Does God have other names? Yes. Through the person and ministry of Jesus Christ, God's name is also be revealed to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, God reveals himself as Trinity. Um, so we see that, that, uh, that God is um, a, a community of persons or a trinity of persons, um, all related as persons, and all, each person being in the other, but, but, uh, but differentiated from the other. All of them God, but all of them uh, subsisting in their person. Um, and of course, you know, taking this just a bit further, um, we also call God... Um, by the name of Jesus Christ, true God, true man. This, um, and, and so we speak of God in this way. Um, we have to kind of differentiate between the Father and the Son, of course. What does hallowed mean? Hallowed means to be treated as holy, set apart, and sacred. To hallow God's name is to honor him as holy. Um, in this entirely imminent understanding of the universe, right, where everything is understood in its own sense as simply a physical object that might have meaning that we ascribe to it and only that meaning that we ascribe to it. Holiness is a bit of a foreign idea to modern people. Um, the idea of this building, for instance, being sacred space, what do we mean by that? Do we mean that we set it apart for our holy sacred purposes? In a bit, but that's not really the end game. What are we talking about? We're saying that here is a place I love what the Celts talk about. They say, here is the thin place, right? where there's, no, there's, there's very little distinction between heaven and earth. Um, well, keep in mind, medieval churches were laid out to look like heaven. Did you know that? The entire architecture followed their understanding of what heaven would be like because that's what the temple is laid out to be. So they've kind of modeled their churches on the temple. And what do you have? Well, you have, you have this... Well, look up. I love how they did this. This is magnificent. This is laid out like the hull of a ship. Did you notice that? Upturned ship. It's the bark of salvation, right? It's an ark. Um, and, and, and it's upturned because it's not an earthly ship. It's a heavenly ship. So it's upside down. Um, and, and, and we live under its protection. And 
there's some speculation that some ancient churches were literally ships that had been overturned and they built the church around the ship or under the ship. It's a perfect way to do it. Um, and we, the people of God, live in this earth, in this ship, right? This bark. Um, as you progress through the church, um, you enter into the choir, which is supposed to be a representative of the heavenly choir of angels that gather around the throne and altar of God constantly day and night, singing holy, holy, holy. Okay, there you go. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? So there's this choir up there. And in medieval Europe, you always had a, a monastic choir singing psalms pretty much constantly all day, every day. Um, and, and this was meant to reflect this heavenly choir. And at the very altar, you have the Holy of Holies, this place where God and man meet, where God is incarnate within his people, especially in the Eucharist. So you see how it works? This whole heavenly thing. And indeed, there's even like a, there's even an antechamber, this like room out there where we keep our baptismal font because you have to enter in through this, through this antechamber. And all that is to say, it's great, really lovely stuff. Um, but the church is meant to reflect in the architecture this heavenly idea. Um, so I'm off on a tangent, but that means that there, it, the church is heavenly because it ref, the church is holy because it reflects this heavenly purpose. Um, hallowed means to be treated as holy, set apart, and sacred, different, other, set aside. Um, and to hallow God's name is to honor Him as holy. So here's here's the thing, guys. <laughs> It's to say that God's name is used for holy purposes and not for profane purposes. That God's name is used uh, to reflect this glory and not to reflect um, kind of um, the mundane. Um, so when we use God's name to refer to any number of things that do not reflect this glory, it becomes a problem. Um, and we'll say more about this when we get to the um, when we get to the Ten Commandments, but. It's enough to simply say that that using um, the language of holiness to refer to any number of things that are not explicitly within that is is a severe problem. Um, to uh, to carry out unjust wars in the name of God is a problem. Um, to uh, I mean one of the one of the things that happens today is you have you have Christian hospitals undertaking evil um, all throughout this world um, and doing it as if we were doing it in God's name. Um, or sometimes just saying, oh, well, you know, I know this is a Christian or a Catholic hospital, but we're doing this anyway. Okay, I'm going to try to move on very quickly. How can you hallow God's name? God is king of all the earth, and I pray that all people everywhere may revere and worship him according to his revelation in Christ and the Holy Scriptures. Um, hallowing God's name not only uh, means that we try and we, we work to bless the name of God and make it and, and, and treat that name with awe and reverence and wonder, but also that we seek his glory in all the world, in others. Um, you know, Paul, wonderful thing in Philippians, the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, every tongue confess. This is Paul's prayer that every single human being would be brought to hallow the name of God. Um, a wonderful thing. And, and I would say we, we do that best by hallowing the name of God personally in, our, in ourselves. 
And that not only re- means that we refer to God in a holy way, but but further that we speak in a holy way um, when we're when we're out and about, that we tell the truth. Um, one of the things I think is really happening a lot today, one of the most destructive tendencies in modern society is to just stop telling the truth. I mean, I, I read last year Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, Gulag Archipelago, which is wonderful reading. If you're interested at all in communism and what it does, <laughs> read, read, read Solzhenitsyn. But he, he says there's so much power in one person simply just telling the truth when everyone else is lying. The problem when everyone else is lying is that, is that it's deadly. Um, because if I lie about the nature of human life or I, or I lie about the value of human life or I lie about, um, about society or I lie about um, my friend or I lie about my neighbor, it's, it's death. It can't be anything else. And what you wind up in is you wind up in a personal hell uh, of your own making because you can't tell the truth anymore. Um, and, and this is really the problem. And I, I'll just step on a limb and just say, this is the problem when speech becomes compelled, when you're forced to say things that are not true, either by your employer or by the society as a whole. Um, you start to live in, in a personal hell um, because you cannot acknowledge what is true or you're, you're not supposed to. Um, so so we, we, we speak of God's name as holy, and this means that we speak in a holy way. We tell the truth. How does God answer this petition? God gives grace that I may honor his holy name and word in public and public worship, and he enables me to walk humbly with him, my God. Um, when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we're appealing to God for the grace to do this thing, to hallow God's name, to tell the truth, uh, to honor his name in worship, both private and public, um, to honor God's name in our households. Um, it's, worship is not easy, friends. It's hard. It's hard work. Uh, because it requires us to to let go of our assumptions about the way this universe is, um, namely that we're at the center of the universe. <laughs> this this universe has a sun that it goes around, and it's me. <laughs> no, 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 no. When we say "Hallowed be Thy name," we say the opposite of that. Um, and that that enables us to walk in humility. The root of all sin is is pride. And and you know, I, I've got time for this. There are really two forms of pride. One is presumption, right? It's saying, I'm the end of the universe. Everything belongs to me. It's all mine. Uh, we walk up to the throne of God and say, I believe you're sitting in my seat. Okay, that's presumption. On the other end is this kind of false humility, which is worse, right? It's where we say, oh, never little old me. I'm not, you know, I'm not important. <laughs> it's all this kind of like, I could never, you know, blah, 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 blah. Shut up, you know, you, you, you get it right, okay? Um, your, your false humility is a kind of pride. Um, and so when we say things like, uh, I am, I'm just, I'm just nothing, you know, oh, oh no, get, no. Um, to hallow God's name, get this, means that God has enabled you to speak of him who is glorious and holy at all, Means we ought not go about life with false with false pride with false humility, because we've been endowed with the ability to speak of God. And that's a sacred and wonderful thing. It's a sacred trust. Okay, how else can you hallow God's name? I can hallow God's name in word and deed by living an obedient and ordered life as His child, as a citizen of His kingdom, 
and is one who seeks his glory. An obedient and ordered life. We can hallow God's name through this obedient and ordered life. Um, I would say that so much of modern life is so highly disordered, and it's disordered for a lot of reasons. I mean, a lot of it's just sin, right? <laughs> sin is disorder. We live in disorder. That's how it is. But it's also to say that, that one of the values of modern life is kind of the endless realm of complete and utter potential, right? It's I can be anything. I can do anything. I can understand myself in any light whatsoever without any care um, about who made me and why. Um, so we live, we seek to live an ordered life. Um, in fact, this is what Paul talks about when he says, honor the emperor, right? <laughs> Pray for the emperor. Well, why? The answer is so you can live, a, you can live an ordered life, a free life, um, unencumbered by, uh, by the kind of um, coercion that often accompanies life in the modern world. This is a severe problem. I mean, we, we worry about living under coercion, and we should because it's about to happen. Um, we're, our, our, our societies and governments in the West are, are operating towards such a way that, um, that, uh, that kind of decency has been lost. We're going to be struck with a, lot of, with a lot of coercion coming up because, you know, when, when you basically feel there's no other way to get people to do what you want than to act violently towards them, there's, you know, there's a severe problem in our society. Um, but, but see what that tells us? It tells us that, that we as Christians ought to live in a humble way, um, in humility, in peace, um, in order, not disorder, um, that we really need to be people who seek God's glory in all things, um, and we need to live as citizens of his kingdom. Um, you know, you think about the value of a passport, right? Some of you know the value of a passport more than others, um, but, but, but you think about what that gives you. It gives you unbelievable rights. An American passport is like gold in this world. Um, but to be a citizen of the kingdom is more, more valuable, more costly, uh, more wonderful than anything. Um, and so it's with that identity in mind that we seek to live as peaceful and ordered citizens in the world um, because, we, because we hold this citizenship in heaven. Um, I'll leave you with this, that uh, if you read Augustine's City of God, for instance, he says, there's a city of God and there's a city of man and they're at odds with each other. The city of God seeks the glory of God. The city of man seeks the glory of myself, basically. Um, and so to live praying daily, if not many times a day, hallowed be thy name, is to be a people who seek God's glory and God's glory above everything else um, and not our own. And that's a powerful thing, friends. We'll pick up next week. And that next week will be the last catechesis session until the middle of January. Okay? Thank you all.